We are knee-deep in our series, Retro Church, and uh, like our lead pastor Donnie said uh, last week, our hope is that by revisiting the accounts in the book of Acts of these first group of folks that uh, called themselves Christians, that you'll be reminded that church is not a place you go. And quite frankly, church is not something you check off your things-to-do list. The church is who we are, and understanding that is, is crucial. It's, it's, it calls us to a greater responsibility. It calls us to great opportunities, and quite frankly, it calls us to great adventure. So let's just talk a little bit more about that this morning. I ran across uh, a quote about living life here uh, a few years ago that I want to share with you this morning. It goes like this, life is tough. It takes up much of your time, all your weekends, and what do you get at the end of it? I think the life cycle is all backward. You should die first, get that out of the way. Then you live 20 years in an old age home. You get kicked out when you're too young. You get a gold watch, then you go to work. You work 40 years until you're young enough to enjoy retirement. You go to college and you party till you're ready for high school. You go to grade school, you become a little kid, and you play. You have no responsibilities. You become a little baby, you go back into the womb, and you spend your last nine months floating, and you finish up as a gleam in somebody's eye. Not bad. As ridiculous as this sounds, I, I do think the author has a point. Um, there ought to be more to life than just waiting for it to be over. You know, uh, somehow it seems like our concept of life has gotten a little bit skewed over the years. We keep trudging along, telling everyone we're just going to really enjoy life, really enjoy, enjoy serving Christ just over that next hill. And then when we get over that next hill, instead of stopping and enjoying the destination, we immediately begin setting off, trudging towards our next, our next place to go. And all too often, that passion and excitement that, that once drove us when we first encountered Christ, it, it sort of settles into this peaceful coexistence, kind of bland, actually. Our, our schedules, our priorities, our relationships, our excitement about our faith, they all seem to get reworked and, and, and reordered and worn out until they are just this hollow shell of what they used to be. All the things that kept us excited and helped us grow early in our faith, um, worship, community groups, opportunities to serve, you know, uh, just spending time in Scripture, all that seems to just turn into this kind of droning hum in our hectic lives. You know, growing up, I was always taught that uh, Christian life was sort of like a mountaintop. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you heard this, you live most of your life in the valley, and and, uh, except for those special times when you actually experience God. And so... Uh, many times at the you know at a camp or a retreat or maybe at the end of a worship service, some well-meaning person would say something like, "Well, we've been to the mountaintop, and now it's time to go back down to the valley below." Really inspirational words to live by, right? Uh, I, I, I intellectually understand that the goal is to to experience God in the valley, much as we did on the mountaintop. But unfortunately for me, that that never really seems to work, and maybe for you, it doesn't work that well either. You know, I, I've spent my whole life thinking that the Christian life is just a series of ups and downs. And so, you know, if I can hang on, kind of like learning to water ski and go up and down enough, eventually I'm going to find myself drawing closer to God. Uh, and, and maybe, maybe, just maybe, I could live on that mountaintop permanently. Well, in my opinion, that's a pretty crummy analogy. I think a roller coaster is actually a better uh, description of, a better model for the Christian life. Now think about this with me for a minute, okay? You, you, uh, you say yes to Jesus, and all of a sudden you're strapped into Christianity, and you have that moment where you think, oh no, what have I done? You think, I am about to die. And so you begin this long, gradual climb, you know, and, and you receive healing, and, and you begin to pray. You learn how to study your Bible, and maybe you're baptized, and, and, and you place membership in a church. Maybe you discover your gifts, and you begin serving in ministry. You think, 
hey, this is not too bad. I, I, I kind of like this. And it, this is a piece of cake. You know, I could follow Jesus anywhere. And then all of a sudden, you crest the hill and, you know, zoom. You know, you crash into the twists and turns of life. I mean, you, school, you got a boyfriend, a girlfriend. All of a sudden, you, you find yourself engaged. You, you get married and, and you begin, you have kids. And all of a sudden, you have a crisis in your faith. Maybe a friend has a prolonged illness. Or maybe there's conflict in your family. And you have doubts about God. And you feel very alone and very empty. And all of a sudden, you, there's a death of a close friend. And uh, maybe a divorce, a marital crisis. You jerk left, you jerk right. And, and left again, you up and down. And 50 or 60 years go by and bam, you're dead. And that's it, you know? I mean, well, that pretty well describes my Christian life. My life with Jesus has been up and down like that. It, it, it's, it's careened left and right, and it's been full of mistakes and, and, and really bonehead decisions and full of embarrassing defeats, but it's also been full of exciting victories. And there have been heart-rending moments. I've been really sad, but there have also been periods of just breathtaking happiness and excitement and optimism. And my guess is that it will continue that way until I draw my last breath in this life. But on that day, I hope I've got just enough lung power to take one big lungful and say to all those in that room and to the God above me, wow, what a ride. What a ride. See, being the church is more than just showing up once a week for a club meeting. I mean, come on, who could get excited about that? I mean, when we do what those before us, what they've done, and make a decision to follow Jesus, we are actually strapping ourselves in for a breathtaking, bone-rattling ride of a lifetime. Every moment matters. Every life counts, and all you can do is hang on for dear life. I mean, this sounds alarming or frightening, uh, life-threatening, exhilarating. Exactly. Okay? When being the church is about recklessly following Jesus wherever he takes us. And so my advice is just fasten your seatbelt, hang on, and enjoy the ride. It's going to be exciting. So this morning, I just want to continue like Donnie did last week and just pick up on a couple of things in the, books, in the book of Acts that those first Christians did and see if we can put those into practice. So um, the first thing I noticed about, about these folks is that they were very motivated. Acts 4, verse 18. So they called the apostles back in and told them never again to speak or teach about Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about the wonderful things that we've seen and heard. The interesting thing is these uh, men were internally driven. These first Christians knew that in Christ they had found something and someone so special, so compelling that uh, they wanted everyone to know. They had for years been a part of a lifestyle and a culture that was oppressive and empty. And they had finally been set free. And they wanted all the people around them who were trapped in the same life and struggling with some of the same stuff to to get free as well. And so now their lives were devoted to getting the word out, regardless of what it cost them personally. And so they became revolutionary. They became countercultural, kind of subversive, very vocal. Sharing about their faith in Jesus, this is interesting, was not driven by external factors. You know, they didn't attend a seminar. There wasn't some guy up in front of the group, you know, making them feel guilty, trying to guilt trip them into sharing about Jesus. Um, There wasn't a class. There wasn't some carrot dangling in front of them, kind of motivating them to talk about Christ. The other thing I noticed is that while external forces weren't motivating them, they also weren't allowing external forces to squelch them either. Um, They would not stop. They were were thrown in jail. They were beaten up. They were tortured. They were discriminated against because of what they said they believed. They were threatened. They were told to shut up about Jesus or else, and they would not stop talking about Jesus. 
So I guess the million-dollar question is why? You know, why would they, at, at such great personal cost, at such risk, why would they not just shut up and go away? Well, I think the answer is found in chapter 4 a little bit earlier in verse 13. It says, The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. They could see that they were just ordinary men who'd had no special training. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. It's really easy to talk about someone that you know and love, isn't it? Um, I have been, I'll be married 21 years next month, and I've actually known my wife, Teresa, for about 25 years. And I remember very clearly our first official date. And um, I remember after that date going home and telling my mom, oh, that's it, I, I know who I want to marry. It, it's, it's Teresa. And, and I always thought that was kind of a lame thing, you know, like that, that, that old saw about how when it, it's the right person, you'll just know. And I used to think, give me a break, you know. But it's, it worked for me. It, it was true. I just knew after that one date. I walked around with a sappy grin on my face for weeks after that. And, and it was just easy to talk about Teresa. It was easy to talk with her and to talk to my buddies about a fun date we had or, you know, kind of show off a, a note that I got and that said all kinds of nice things about me or, or uh, kind of tell them that, you know, she baked me a whole pie. This is, is this great or what? You know, I, lo- I love having a girlfriend. So, um, and then, you know, uh, we dated for a long time. We got engaged and, and, and got married. And, and I can honestly say on, on, on that day, my, my life took an even turn, even for the better. I think her life took a turn for the worse at that point, but you can talk to her about that. Um, and, you know, and now, man, I, we, you know, children and, 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 and struggles that we face and all those really nasty fights that I probably started and, and, and making up and, 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 and learning to sacrifice and, and see our dreams come true and, and all the struggles and the uncertainties and the challenges of, of raising kids and, and job changes and moves and all that stuff that we have together. And today, it's still just as easy, even easier to talk about my wife as it was the first day that we started going out because she's my best friend. She knows me better than anyone else, and I know her, and we have this history together. And so when I say to Teresa today, I love you, it means something very different than it meant, you know, 21 years ago, the day we got married. I I meant it then, but now I have over two decades of history behind those three little words. And so there's there's a richness, a depth, an intensity, and an ease at talking about her. If, if you stop me in the foyer today, if you got time, I can talk to you for two hours about my best friend, about my wife. Well, there's an application you made here, an implication that's crystal clear about Jesus. If we spend time with Jesus, just spend time with him. If we do, we'll find our love growing deeper and more intense. And talking about him becomes easy. It, at first, it's kind of like puppy love, and we're so excited. But over the years, it deepens, and we have more stories to tell. And, and more of a confidence and more of a trust. And, and it's just second nature to us to talk about this, this being who's become so special to us and all that he's done in our lives. And we are unstoppable. We can't shut up. No matter what happens, we cannot stop talking about this relationship that we have and how it's changed our life. The other thing I noticed about these guys here in the book of Acts is that they were very vocal they communicated very clearly a message about how Jesus had changed their life. And they did this in two ways. The first way they did it was with their life. They lived their faith. Uh, Brendan Manning's a great author um, that I would encourage you to, to check, check it out. If, if you're going to read one book this year, read the Bible, okay? If you've got time for two, check out a little book called The Ragamuffin Gospel by Brendan Manning. It's one of the best books I've ever read 
about grace. But he has this quote, very challenging quote. He said, the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Now, I don't have time to go through all the passages this morning. Donnie talked about uh, a few of these last week in Acts 2 and Acts 4. There's lots of examples of how the early church lived out their faith in the world around them. But I I do want to point out that there were no marketing gimmicks. There was no uh, big, complicated church growth strategy. It was just very simple, just a commitment to live their lives by what they said they believed, by their convictions, by, by their principles. And the world was turned upside down. It always is by people who live with passion and conviction and purpose. Now, I want to be real clear. I'm, I'm not against finding new and creative ways to share about your faith in Jesus. I mean, I do student ministry for crying out loud, okay? But I just want to encourage all of us to be very careful that here at LifePoint that we don't substitute clever gimmicks for living out our faith. If all we have to offer the world is a catchy slogan or a, a nifty little giveaway thing or, or something clever like that, that's pretty empty and hollow and they don't, they're not really interested in that. What they want to know is, does a faith in Jesus really change your life? Are you a different person today than you were a week ago, a month ago, a year ago? Does this really work? And the only way, the only way for us to prove that is by our lives. So if we do what these guys did, we will live out our faith. Of course, they also they spoke about their faith. Uh, this is kind of cool. John chapter 1, a little bit earlier than the book of Acts, um, there's a story about a couple of guys that first started following Jesus. Uh, it says that day John was stand, again standing with his two disciples, and as Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, Look, there's the Lamb of God. Then John's two disciples turned around and followed Jesus. Jesus looked around and saw them following. What do you want? He asked them. I love that. They replied, Well, Rabbi, where are you staying? Well, come and see, he said. It was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to the place, and they stayed there the rest of the day. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these men who had heard what John said and then followed Jesus. Check this out. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, come be my disciple. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, Andrew and Peter's hometown. And so Philip went off to look for Nathanael and told him, we found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nazareth, exclaimed Nathaniel, can anything good come from there? Well, just come and see for yourself, Philip said. Do you see a pattern here? Spent time with Jesus, and they couldn't help talking about him. And they started right with the people in their immediate sphere of influence, their family, their friends. And, you know, there were objections. There, there was some skepticism there. And I love that. They didn't know everything about Jesus. They hadn't spent that much time with him. And so, you know, they just said, I don't know. Come see for yourself. I think, I can do that. You can too. Just spend time with Jesus. And as he changes your life, you just talk about him with the people around you, your family, your friends, your coworkers, people you go to school with. And relax. You don't have to have all the answers. I don't know how you can. But what you can speak to is what Jesus means to you, what he's done in your life. And when they ask you all kinds of complicated questions or have objections or, or make fun, you just kind of shrug your shoulders and go, I don't know. You, you should check this out for yourself. It, it has been an incredible thing in my life. Just come check it out. The last thing that um, I want to talk to you about this morning is just that these folks were available. 
There's a, 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 an amazing story in Acts chapter 8 about how God continues to use Philip. And I'm going to give you the really abbreviated version here this morning. It goes something like this. Philip actually starts a church in the country of uh, Samaria. It's a place nobody else wanted to go because in Philip's time, if you're a good Jewish boy, uh, you were taught since you were very little that um, you despised Samaritans. You never talked to a Samaritan. Uh, you never ate with a Samaritan. You never went anywhere close to a Samaritan. If your family went on a trip and, and, and where you were going was on the other side of Samaria, you mapped a route around the country so that you wouldn't soil yourself by stepping across the border on, on Samaritan soil. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. And that was the last people in the world that you'd want to talk to if you were a good Jewish boy. Well, Philip understood that um, the gospel, the good news about Jesus, was for everybody. And he made a determination that he would not allow anybody to draw lines for him and tell him who he could and could not talk to about Jesus. He knew there were a lot of people in Samaria that probably would, want to be, would be interested in this message about Jesus. And so he plunks down in the middle of the country, starts a church there, and the thing explodes. There are hundreds of people coming to Christ every day. People are being healed. All kinds of supernatural things are happening. And it is an exciting and wonderful time. And right in the middle of all that, God gets Philip's attention, and he gives him kind of some, some tough instructions to follow. He says, Philip, I want you to go south to Gaza. Now, to put this in context, um, in, in Philip's day, about 300 years before the time of Philip, um, there's a guy named Alexander the Great. And Alexander and his army conquered the known world at that time. They had a really simple strategy. They would, they would sort of roll up to the, to the gates of a city, you know, knock, and someone would answer the door and say, hello, I'm Alexander the Great. Uh, I'm here to take over your city. Surrender or die. Well, if they surrendered, life was good. They, if they did not surrender, then Alexander turned around to his army and said, go get them, guys. They went and they destroyed every single living thing in the city. They tore down all the buildings. And, and then, to sort of underline the point, they totally scraped the city off its original foundation and left it in a pile of rubble right next to its original site. Then Alexander and his crew would go down the road to the next city, walk over the gate, knock. Hi, I'm Alexander the Great. I'm here to take over your city, surrender or die. And if the people hesitated... Alexander would just point up the road to the other city, and they would go, oh, come right on in, Mr. the Great. Uh, can we get you some iced tea? You want to sit down? Um, you know, what can we do for you? How can we serve you today, sir? Well, Gaza was one of those cities that did not surrender. And Alexander the Great and his army, they leveled the place, they scraped it off its foundation, and left it as a big pile of rubble in the wilderness. So in Philip's day, the Romans had actually come in and rebuilt Gaza as kind of a tourist town on the coast. It was a really cool place, kind of artsy, lots of neat stuff happened out there, a great vacation spot. So guess where God sends Philip? To this great place on the coast or to a pile of rocks in the desert? You guessed it, a pile of rocks in the desert. How depressing and how difficult that would be for Philip to leave this incredibly exciting and growing ministry to go out to a pile of rocks. But because Philip put aside his own agenda and his own ego, something really special took place. In Acts 8, verse 26, it says, um, As for Philip, an angel of the Lord said to him, Go south down the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he did, and he met a treasurer of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under the queen of Ethiopia. The eunuch had gone to Jerusalem for worship and was now returning. And seated in his carriage, he was reading aloud from the book of the prophet Isaiah. And the Holy Spirit said to Philip, now, go over and walk along beside the carriage. But Philip ran over and heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. And so he asked, do you understand what you're reading? And the man replied, well, how can I when there's no one to instruct me? 
So he begged Philip to come up into the carriage and sit with him. And so Philip began with that same scripture and used many others to tell him the good news about Jesus. As they rode along, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized? And he ordered the carriage to stop, and they went down to the water, and Philip baptized him. It's an amazing story. See, the deal is the church means being willing and available. You know, the question we all have to ask is, am I willing to set aside my own ego and my own agenda and just say to God, okay, um, where are we going today, Lord? Allowing God to reprioritize our schedule, our finances, uh, our, you know, all of our things that we kind of look to, the way we construct our life, and just be available for him to use and, and to not care who gets credit for it. Not worry that my name is or is not attached to that person or not, but just be available for God to use however he sees fit. 